0: Jane Brown.
1: Libby is off today. She is back tomorrow. Great to be here with you as always. It's Zoomer Squad Day on Fight Back. Joining us as they do every Monday, David Kravitz, Chief Marketing Officer at CARP and Vice President here at Zoomer Media. Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer at CARP. And Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine. Welcome to you all.
2: Hi there. Hi, everyone. Hi, Jay. Hi, Jay.
1: Well, let's discuss first the results of a new poll on Canadians' attitudes toward long-term care. New Angus Reid survey suggests the pandemic has changed the way most Canadians think about their future with long-term care. 80% say their views have changed toward long-term care since the majority of COVID-related deaths in this country have been in nursing homes. And more than half of the respondents say they personally dread That is the language. They dread the idea of themselves or a loved one eventually living in long-term care. Uh, David, as upsetting as all of this has been for all of us, these deaths in long-term care, really this is no surprise. Well, it's no surprise.
2: And we heard this at a very visceral level in the uh, petition that we ran, that CARP ran to the place minister for long term care minister fullerton in addition to over 8000 responses over 2200 people 2000 people took the time to write their personal comments and we had that verbatim in many comments i am a senior myself and i never want to go into a long i'm afraid of this i'm afraid of this for myself i'm afraid of this for my parents and i'm expressing it uh using you know relatively clean and simple language. Some of the terms and some of the language was was quite uh, emotional and strident. So none of this comes as a surprise.
1: Well, I mean, Bill, who who would want to go into long-term care after hearing the stories we've heard through the pandemic?
3: Well, that's right. And even before the pandemic, we know that almost 90 percent of the uh, our members preferred not to go into long-term care. Uh, COVID has just exacerbated that uh, opinion. And now people are not just not wanting to go. They're afraid of going into long-term care.
1: Mm Uh, Peter, um, I mean, this is an issue that has horrified us all at the same time, but it has galvanized us. As David was uh, talking there about CARP members expressing their concerns and fears and frustrations about long-term care. It, it, it makes you wonder if long-term care or even revitalizing it or changing it in some way is the way to go as we move into the future.
4: Yeah, well, Jane. An important part of that survey was um, the number of people who um, not only prefer home care but are now willing to pay for it, and and that's a huge breakthrough. Uh, before people, you know, may have just said uh, home care seems like a preferable option, but not many would would uh, back it up with dollars, and and now. Uh, over seventy percent of Canadians said they're they're willing to pay up for home care, and and I think that's a big switch, uh, and and it's probably brought about by how disastrous the nursing homes um, responded to COVID. So um, I, I'm sure Bill's following that closely, but that that seems to be a, a, like a step forward in in CARP's. Uh, battle to improve home
1: care. Well, let's put that out to you, the Zoomer Radio listener. Um, you're living at home right now, be in an apartment, a condo, a house. Do you? What are you looking for in the future for your own care when you can no longer look after yourself? Do you want to go to long-term care, perhaps uh, a long-term care that has been overhauled? Or are you hoping you can stay at home with uh, whatever is required to stay in your home, be it nursing staff coming in, um, uh, modifications to your home so that you can live comfortably at home? What is your preference? 416-360-0740, toll-free, 740 4740 So I guess the conversation now, David, is whether we move forward as a society and plan on uh, moving the emphasis towards home care, or do we overhaul long-term care? And that was part of this survey. Three quarters of respondents say significant changes, if not a complete overhaul, should happen in long-term care, though the responses were divided on how to do that. Let me just give you a couple of them. 55% say they would be willing to pay an increase of 2% in their tax rate to fund improvements to long-term care. Three Three quarters of respondents also say they would support making long-term care a fully integrated part of the public health system. David, your reaction to that?
2: Well, I, I think it's—I think really it's a mixture of both because I think you have to redefine long-term care as including and being the, the bedrock is home care. There's always going to be a need for a medical type of facility for very late in life, end of life severe comorbidities, dementia, and so on. There's always going to be a point at which a a small number of the population cannot continue to age at home. And it's no contradiction to say that that segment, that chunk, which is not that large, must be better run than it is today. It absolutely must be fixed. So there's no contradiction to say you've got to fix that hot mess, which it is, but at the same time, you've got to shift – your view of what is long-term care in the first, in the first place to say the bedrock is uh, home care. And I think it's a continuum, and I think as a society we've got to look at this as a continuum. Stay at home as absolutely as long as you can. If you're one of the relatively small number who need uh, medical institutional support, then that should be delivered way better than it's been delivered so far.
1: Bill, what are CARP members saying about that? I mean, I think David makes an excellent point that staying at home for as long as that can be facilitated based on the condition of the individual and then in the cases where there is no other option but to go to long-term care, that's when an individual would have to leave their home.
3: David is absolutely right. And uh, for many many reasons, uh, Home and community care is the answer. Uh, you know, at the most basic level, there's no way that governments or industry itself can build the number of beds that would be necessary with the increased numbers of uh, and, and longer living uh, older Canadians that we have that we can continue to support them in the way way we have. So we not only have to improve the funding and the support of the long term care uh, industry especially around the staffing issues which is something government can do something about uh, but we have to uh, understand that the only way we can look after our loved ones is to have improved care where they are living in their own home in a family home in an apartment in their own uh, in their own community that's uh, not only what they want to do uh, but it's the only way we can handle the, the the numbers. And that's why CARP has been pushing so hard for a real focus on home and community care.
1: Peter, I'll go to you on this now. Uh, it seems Canadians are willing to think about funding either through our taxes or through changing up the way long-term care is managed. Oh, the vision for the future. Um, now that you've heard the results of this poll, what, what do you think about that?
4: Well, um, you know, I, I envision a uh, you know a situation where people with you know a, as you age, people have more health needs and care needs, and and uh, right now they're they're really not looked after by the home care. Sector, you, you you apply for help, and and someone comes in and and gives you usually less than sub than optimal help based on on what your needs are and your uh, income is, and um, you know oftentimes it's just not available. So it, it, it's very hard to, for um, for us to say, you know, um, what the what the ideal home care situation would be because we have nowhere near the ideal right now. They, what we have now is, is sort of a very piecework system that, that doesn't really help. Um, you know, it helps some people, but, but not, not anywhere near the majority. So, so we need to rethink that from a governmental level and, and, and sort of get Canadians um, not only think about how they can take care of themselves to avoid the need to go into home or community care, but also, um, they they have to figure out how to deliver it to the homes, and and that's going to be a huge, huge challenge. And uh, I'm not sure any of the governments are there yet. Bill, would you would you say the governments are even close to being there? No, they they
3: aren't. And those things they promise, like the changes that the current Ontario government promised to make in the in the lens in terms of of making it easier for people to navigate the, the system of home care those have those were promised that when they were elected are still not in place one you know there are two problems one is there are not enough home care supports and the second is uh, those that are available are so difficult to access yeah. and so different yeah. from community to community and even within I,
2: community
4: but yeah but Dr. I, I, Dr. I think Righto. there's another
2: yeah. i think sorry go ahead david I I think there's another angle to this, too. Peter said earlier people are more willing to pay. But I think it also starts with people having to switch their focus, the public, to a more conscious evaluation and plan for what home care actually means for them. Mm -hmm. Up until now, there's been a generic kind of, I don't want to go into a nursing home. That's not a new thought. That that existed long before the pandemic. Nobody was saying, oh goody, I'm counting down the days in which I can go into a nursing home. Everybody always said, I'd rather age at home, but it was a kind of a vague, generic thing. They didn't really think too much about what that meant and what those needs were. And now they're consciously, I think there's a need to start consciously planning. What does your home look like? What is the physical facility? What are your daily needs? Where are you gonna get those needs met? Is it as simple as having your grown up daughter or or daughter-in-law come in and help you do the food shopping once a week and you don't need to pay for anything? Do you need a home care worker? What does that worker look like? What does it cost? There needs to be more sort of conscious strategizing around this and I think that we're going to eventually be in a mode in which, you know, you're aging and you're living in place. We prefer to call it a car, not aging in place, but your home care plan and strategy becomes as as concrete and specific as your financial plan. You have a care st- planner as much as you're going to have a financial Planner and the industry is going to become incredibly diverse with a massive range of options. It's been estimated in the United States that the home care industry, all the different services, all the different products, all the different things, is now worth $151 billion a year and is growing at a compound annual growth rate of 13%. So there's going to be this dazzling range of choices and options and strategies, and the average person is going to need to or want to take a look at that a lot more systematically than they have up until now.
1: I think you're absolutely right, David. Uh, you know, when when I think back to decades ago, when when uh, the grandparents of friends were having to go into long-term care, n- none of those individuals wanted to leave their homes. And in fact, right. I think until women went out into the workforce en masse, these older people would stay at home in multi-generational families and right. be taken care of by the younger adults in the home. So I... I don't know whether because of that movement in the 60s and the 70s, it just wasn't tended to properly, the long-term care industry. And I'll just go around quickly to each of you on this. Uh, Bill, I don't know if, if, if we rushed into it and then the pandemic really brought out all of the faults in the system or it was never really done properly to begin with.
3: Well, it wasn't. Uh, the, it wasn't supported properly to begin with, and one, one of the issues that we discovered through COVID was that the long-term care industry, both the, the private and uh, the, the private for-profit and the not-for-profit, have been asking for government guidelines, government help, for more uh, for more money to to renovate, uh, to build more uh, spaces. And that was entirely uh, ignored uh, throughout the time leading up to the pandemic. So the industry has tried to fix this problem for over uh, over 10 years. And we're still trying to catch up with inaction uh, during that
1: time. Peter, do you have a final comment before we move on? Well, you know, I I was thinking, Jane, it might be
4: interesting to like not leave this to the government or to, you know, uh, governmental health care planners. Come up with like a think tank of, of sort of wise people to like this is a plan that might work you know like you know uh you know uh build it in you know uh sort of create plans for it first before we we do it in dribs and drabs and it becomes another terrible system let's think about it beforehand let's put some real thought and uh planning into it and uh when when that's done then then maybe we can move forward but i i certainly am skeptical leaving it up to the government to solve this
1: David, final comment
2: on that. I completely agree with peter it's got to be um, but I think it, I think you 've got to argue from the the consumer or the, co- the, the the public backwards so that what do I need to age in place? What do I need physically? what do I need support systems? What do I need from technology? What does that look like? Then you say, where do I get it and who pays for it? And it's just got to be a continuum, a system, rather than piecemeal, a silo over here that's suddenly rushing to build more beds and bricks and mortar institutions. Not that that's a bad idea, but how does it all fit? And I don't see anybody, certainly in the government. Figuring out uh, a system wide approach to this.
1: Right. And and a hybrid approach, really. A hybrid approach, exactly. Uh, you're listening to Zoomer Radio's Fight Back, Jane Fralibby, along with our Zoomer Squad, David Kravitz, Bill Van Gorder, and Peter Mugrich. We'll change topics now, but you're welcome to call in anytime at 416 360 0740. Toll free 1 866 740 4740. Squad, uh, momentum is gaining in a global context to make it mandatory for health care workers to get vaccinated against COVID-19 in France. Health care workers now have and this has just been mandated they now have until September 15th to begin the vaccination process or risk being suspended from their jobs this leads to uh, the question and the push here in Ontario uh, for mandatory vaccines for health care workers but will premier Ford be forced to change his mind on this uh, i'll get your thoughts on this first David.
2: Well, there's no telling whether he'll be forced to change his mind. We've talked about this before, and we've agreed that it's, uh, in my my opinion, that it's just uh, crazy not to uh, require this. It's a perfectly reasonable requirement. It doesn't impede on your civil rights, because if you choose not to do it, no one's going to come and arrest you and force you. It just means you can't work in this particular occupation. And it's no different than a host of other occupational requirements from credentials to equipment to uh, not passing tests to be licensed. It's no, just another requirement. If you want to do this for a living, this is what you need to do.
1: Bill, over to you on this. Uh, it's, it's become quite a contentious issue. Uh, you informed us last week that long-term care workers in New Brunswick have been forced to get vaccinated. There's been no real backlash. Now we're seeing different countries around the world embrace this policy. Will it ultimately be accepted here in Ontario?
3: It has to be ultimately uh, accepted. There's just uh, there's uh, almost no one other than uh, government who's involved in the uh, industry is saying that isn't the the ideal. That uh, if we're we all know that protect to protect our loved ones in long term care, we have to keep COVID out of long term care, and the only way. That we know of to do that because people must move in and out of those building facilities is to make sure those uh, people who are moving in and out aren't carrying it with them and there are two stages that are necessary and let's not forget the first one the first is that that everyone should be uh, who's uh, going into long-term care working in them should be double vaccinated and the second is because people can be asymptomatic there has to be a testing procedure and Ontario is lagging way behind a number of the other provinces when it comes to access to uh, public and workplace testing uh, for uh, for COVID. And that's the other people that, the other part that's being missed in this discussion, we think.
1: Well, here's some evidence uh, for mandatory vaccinations for healthcare workers. There are now five resident deaths at the village of Tansley Woods Long-Term Care Home in Burlington. Peter, this is becoming a significant and deadly outbreak of the Delta variant in a setting where you have 95% of the residents double-vaxxed against COVID-19.
4: Yeah, and um, the interesting thing from that is that um, 86% of the workers at that home have had their first dose, um, and only 52% are fully vaccinated. So um, I I think that just shows, like, there's a willingness to get vaccinated, but they just haven't followed through on it. And Mm. maybe a measure like Macron's in Canada would... would, uh, you know, get that 52% up to 96%. You know, so um, m- my guess is that Ford is waiting for Trudeau to implement something from a federal level. He's, he doesn't, he wants to be seen as protecting civil rights, you know, so he's not going to move on this uh, mandatory vaccination and is just praying that Trudeau does.
1: We've been talking about home care versus long-term care or a hybrid of uh, both of those systems. We're talking now about uh, mandatory vaccinations for health care workers and the push behind that. Uh, Some of our Zoomer radio listeners want to get in on the conversation with our Zoomer squad. Let's go to Sharon in Oshawa. Sharon, what's on your mind?
5: Good morning. I just love this group on Mondays, and, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm,
1: and I'm a first-time caller. Great, good to have you with us,
5: Sharon. Yeah, I have worked in um, healthcare for over 30 years, mostly with seniors, and I've worked with both community staff and uh, long-term care. And I, I'm a firm believer in the in the community staff uh, aspect. But I think they're going to need a whole lot more staff and they're going to need a whole lot more better trained staff. And I think that the staff in the community needs a whole lot more supervision. There's too many people that just come and go willy-nilly. And the scheduling aspect in the community is often very um, uh, unsupervised and they don't allow a lot of time between clients to get to their people. Um, And I think going back when they get that sort of fine-tuned we're probably going to have to go back to the old days where doctors are going to be doing some home care visits as well. Ah, uh, yes. But um, so that's what I had to say. Thank I don't you. think that long-term care is the, is the be-all and end-all. Um, there's certainly a lot of other community options out
1: there. Thank you for your perspective, Sharon. We appreciate it. Thank you. Let's go to Madeline in Peterborough. Madeline, go ahead. You're on Fight Back.
6: Hi, Jane. Um, No relation. Last name is Brown, but I'm sure (laughs) we're not related. (laughs) Anyway, I want to talk about mandating um, public health workers. Um, I was an elementary school secretary for over 20 years with the Catholic Board in Toronto. Um, If a student was not up to date with their immunizations, they were suspended. Mm -hmm. I had them sitting outside my office many times until a parent came to pick them up. Now, this is a public health thing, and I don't understand why the public health are not stepping in and mandating these public health workers to be vaccinated.
1: Thank I you. Yeah. Wanted,
6: wouldn't, I, if I had to go to the hospital, I would want to know who was treating me.
1: Yeah, no, you bring up an excellent point. And in fact, Madeline, when we had Dr. Casamon from the Ontario Medical Association, he brought up that very point, or at least he reacted to that point. So thank you for calling in. I'll go around the table with the squad, David.
2: 100% correct. It's a public health issue. There is a means that exists in the form of these vaccines to up the level of uh, protection, never going to be 100%. But there's no reason to not do everything we can. And uh, I think uh, the caller makes uh, complete sense. Completely agree.
1: Bill, your thoughts?
3: Absolutely uh, agree uh, also. In fact, when this issue first came up and we talked to our current members about it, about it, almost all of them were surprised that it wasn't already mandated. They were horrified to think that uh, somehow this wasn't uh, being done. It was expected that that this, this is how we would protect uh, people. And, and now the, the, the
4: question is, why wasn't this done right from the beginning?
1: And Peter, to you.
4: Well, speaking as a father who got a note home because uh, my son wasn't up on his vaccinations, uh, you know, I, I didn't think anything of it. Like I wasn't angry about it. I, I was just sort of, okay, let's get it done. Right. Uh, you know, it's my own mix up. And uh, so we got it done. So I I assume that sort of mentality will be present among people who are um, in in uh, professions where they have to get vaccinated, they'll they'll it'll just be an irritant, but they'll do it.
1: I'd like to uh, wrap up today's Zoomer Squad chat uh, with a story from the Olympics. Um, it's it's quite something to learn that there is a woman who is 46. She is the oldest Olympic gymnast to compete. It is her eighth Olympic Games. She's from Uzbekistan, Oksana Chusovitina. And she has, I mean, she's just wowing the world with her ability to compete with women and girls decades younger than her. I, I guess the question I want to ask the three of you, what does this say about our longevity, fitness and health as we age, David?
2: Just more evidence of what's happening. Uh, there are over 10,000 Canadians over the age of 70 who take part in recreational uh, ice hockey Leagues, Uh, good for her. She's great, and bear in mind too, Jane, that this is a sport, Olympic uh, uh, gymnastics for women, where you're you're considered old and maybe even washed up at uh, 22 or
1: 23. Right. Yeah. No. It is. It is phenomenal. I was. I had to. You know, look at it two or three times, Bill, (laughs) before I was able to kind of digest it.
3: well it certainly made me uh, made me smile when i think that uh, i have a, i have a daughter who's very athletic who is older than uh, that uh, woman we we've, we've really got to change our opinion of of what's old i'm not surprised uh, at at all we're seeing it in all sports uh, uh, these days as david uh, uh, said it's just uh, it's the new world we live in uh, now and i guess uh, I guess 46 is the new 26. <laughs> right.
1: Peter, certainly an inspiration for all of us uh, You know, as we age, and uh, our main goal, obviously, to stay healthy and physically fit.
4: Yeah, and I, I think I'll put my floor routine on hold for a bit before.
1: I... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I still have hopes of making the seniors uh, LPGA. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> Why not, right? Right. All right, guys. Well, have a wonderful last um, week of July, and we'll look forward to hearing your views on Fight Back next uh, Monday, which is a holiday, actually.
2: Thanks, Jane. Thanks so much, Jane. Thanks, Thanks, everyone.
1: That's our Zoomer squad, David Kravitz, Chief Marketing Officer at CARP and Vice President at Zoomer Media, Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer at CARP, and Peter Muggridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine. Jane for Libby, she's back tomorrow. And coming up in the second half hour, while the majority of Canadians are in the process of becoming fully vaccinated, there are... Many people who are still hesitant. Are you one of these people, or do you know someone who's vaccine hesitant or an anti vaxxer? Numbers to call 416 3600740, toll free 1 866 740 4740. We discuss COVID vaccine hesitancy with a panel of experts next.
0: Fight Back with Libby Nimer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown.
1: Libby returns tomorrow. Public health experts say the race is on between the COVID vaccine and the Delta variant. As cases rise in the U.S., parts of Europe, Australia, along with the U.K., not to mention Tokyo, where the Olympics are being held. We've yet to see this trend here in Canada. Yet. We are leading the world in vaccination rates, with nearly 80% of eligible Canadians having received one shot of vaccine and more than 57% fully vaccinated with two doses. Compare this with the United States, where just 49% of eligible residents are fully vaccinated with two doses. But the push is on to ensure the Delta variant does not cause a fourth wave in Canada. The experts say the unvaccinated need to step up and get their shots so that we don't have this fourth wave. So what's deterring these individuals from getting vaccinated? Is it all misinformation? Is there a real genuine fear for some and why? Let me put this out to you as you're listening. Are you vaccine hesitant and why? Uh, Or do you know somebody who is and can't figure out how to talk to this individual? 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. Joining us to discuss, Dr. Susie Hota, Medical Director, Infection Prevention and Control at the University Health Network, and Dr. Gerald Evans. Chair of the Division of Infectious Diseases and Professor at Queen's University. Welcome back to you both. Thank you. Thanks, Dr. Hota, I'll start with you. What is the biggest barrier to getting the unvaccinated vaccinated?
6: Uh, you know, I actually think it's a combination of things that continue and they're much of the same uh, factors that were leading people to uncertainty in the beginning. So there is still not enough uh, access in some parts of the country to vaccines or even to the booking and getting to the vaccines, that can be a challenge for some people. I think there's an assumption that we've made that all very easy for everybody and perhaps in urban areas we've made it easier, but we still have some work to do there. There's the knowledge and understanding of how important it is to get vaccinated, what the vaccines are, so that people feel comfortable about the safety and how well the vaccines work and the process that got us to developing those vaccines. And then there's a trust issue, and that a really, really tough one because there are many different reasons why people may have mistrust in the vaccines, in the way it's being rolled out, how they were studied, etc. Um, that I think is, is kind
1: of interesting, but increasingly we're going to have to pay more attention to. Dr. Evans, what about you? The biggest barrier to getting the unvaccinated vaccinated?
7: Well, uh, I think Dr. has really touched on on really the really relevant points. What we know behaviorally about vaccine uptake is that there are there are probably six major categories that impact on people's decision about being vaccinated one is threat perception Uh, so the idea that you maybe perhaps might get it versus somebody who might say to themselves well i'll get it but i won't get sick there is of course the leadership issue the trust that we need to have within leadership uh, that's leading the the um, work towards vaccine people look at individual and collective interests somewhat differently Um, Dr. Hoda mentioned science communication, which is a big one. And there's still a lot of unfortunate misinformation and even disinformation that's emerging, suggesting somehow that this is highly experimental and we really don't know how well these vaccines work and how safe they are. And then there's a lot of things like the social context we work in within a family, within our norms within our peer groups, etc. And then there's, of course, the whole issue of stress and coping. And under stress and anxiety, humans tend to sort of deviate to um, simple ideas that can create a lot of cognitive bias, meaning that they really uh, shortcut their way to uh, trying to make a decision. And that's not good. And, and that's really difficult to overcome. So
1: i I do want to talk about some of the myths and have both of you debunk these myths for our listening audience. And by the way, we do have some Zoomer radio listeners who do want to get in on the conversation. First, though, I want to ask you both um, that we knew from the beginning, we were having these conversations late last year, uh, people wanted to wait. Some people wanted to wait. There were those who said, I will get the vaccine right away. There were others who said, I want to see how it's received b- before I get it. How much, Dr is that playing into the current scenario that some people are still waiting?
6: Yeah, I think there still is a little bit of that hesitation around um, how well do these work. And I think one of the things that did us a disservice in that area was the rapidly changing information that was coming out, particularly around AstraZeneca, but, you know, with other vaccines as well, as we rolled out so rapidly and got, um, you know, the kind of post-surveillance information that you want to get, with vaccines. And that's made a few people a little bit uneasy. But it's a natural process, and it's important to keep monitoring. And I think that uh, it's overall very helpful for us to understand how
1: they work. Dr. Evans, do we have individuals out there still waiting to see how the wider population reacts to the vaccine?
7: Uh, I I totally agree that there are certainly probably people who think that we haven't uh, used the vaccine in enough people. Um, If you look globally, we've administered over 1 billion vaccines around the world. Uh, Here in Canada, those numbers are well up into the millions of doses. And I think if there was even a rare safety signal beyond the rare ones we've already seen, we would have seen that by now. So um, I, I do understand that people continue to think that they don't have enough information. But, I mean, we really have rolled out these vaccines with great success into billions of people around the planet, and we are not seeing any dreadful, terrible things popping up that would be unexpected. So it's no longer the guinea pig phenomenon. We are now vaccinating the general population and doing it safely and with great effectiveness.
1: So let me ask you this question then uh, to our audience. Why would you still be hesitant to get the COVID vaccine based on what our experts are saying? Or why would a loved one or friends still be feeling that way? Uh, I'd like to hear from you. 416 360 toll-free 1-866-740-4740 Rhonda in Scarborough, welcome to Fight Back. What do you have to say today?
6: Hi, good afternoon. Um, My name is Rhonda, and my nephew is a pharmacist, and I've been trying to convince him for over a year and a quarter to get a shot. Um, I am so fed up with him. Uh, He's telling me that he looks on the computer and he sees all the side effects from all the different vaccines in the world, and he's he's not going to get a shot. He's convinced his wife and his brother-in-law, And he's saying later in life that he'll probably get some kind of side effect and he'll suffer when he gets to be elderly. Can you please help me convince him?
1: Okay, yes. And and that's a great way of phrasing it as well. Help me convince him. And it's interesting that he's a pharmacist. I'm wondering, is he actually giving the vaccine? No, he's not. Okay. All right, Rhonda, we'll go to our experts here. Uh, Dr. Hoda, how do you combat that kind of thinking?
6: Well, I can always understand when people are, you know, a little bit nervous, they read the list of things that can happen. But, you know, we've got to put this in context, the broader picture of what's going on. You may be worried about down the road having some side effects or some long-term implications that you may or may not be able to connect to that vaccine. However, you know, if you were not to protect yourself from getting COVID-19, you know, COVID itself has long-term health effects that we're hearing more and more about. So everything's about weighing those risks against each other and looking at the overall picture and what's the benefit to you to protect yourself from severe illness uh, and not ending up in the ICU or dying from COVID infection. uh, And also the population around you and helping our society come out of this pandemic. And, you know, when you do that, that kind of calculation, you know, clearly does tip over to the side of benefit. Um, So I guess. That's how I would approach it, not to mention that we accept many risks in our lives and um, we're okay with that because there's always some other benefit that outweighs it. So uh, I guess hopefully that might help you with a a little bit with the conversation.
1: And Dr. Evans, what advice would you give Rhonda uh, so she can talk with her pharmacist nephew and, um, and feel that she's making an impact without upsetting him or insulting him?
7: Yeah, it's hard to, to expound further than my un- unbelievably brilliant colleague, Dr. Hoda, just did around how how one would approach this. But I will say that, you know, what the problem lies here is oftentimes a concept of threat perception, um, which can exist in someone and may be influenced very much by an individual interest. It's possible that this person has had some sort of identifiable life. Uh, of someone he knows where uh, perhaps some kind of issue arose that was thought to be related to vaccine. If that's the case that kind of anecdotal experience can override any kind of communication you can do and it can make it very very difficult to convince a person like that to take vaccine. I guess my my favorite story right now is uh, I'm a guitarist. I, Eric Clapton's one of the world's greatest guitarists, way better than me. But he had a, a bit of a reaction when he got his first dose of um, AstraZeneca. And he's now expounding to everybody who listened to him, don't get the vaccines because I had this bad experience. And and because he's a celebrity, uh, people attach something to that. That's an identifiable life that they can look at. So it is a challenge, Rhonda. I don't, I don't envy you trying to do your best here. But there may be things that in, are lurking in the background that are influencing Uh, your nephew's
1: decision. All right, we need to take a quick break. I'm with Dr. Gerald Evans, Chair of the Division of Infectious Diseases and Professor at Queen's University, along with Dr. Susie Hota, Medical Director, Infection Prevention and Control at the University Health Network. When we come back, I will get our experts to debunk some of the myths around COVID vaccinations, and I'll get to your phone calls as well. 416- 360- 0740, free 1-866-740-4740.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown.
1: Libby is back tomorrow. We're talking about vaccine hesitancy with Dr. Susie Hota, Medical Director, Infection Prevention and Control at University Health Network, and Dr. Gerald Evans, Chair of the Division of Infectious Diseases and Professor at Queen's University. Before we go to the phones, uh, I'd like to get your uh, debunking of some of the myths that are out there. Dr. Hota, the myth that vaccine will alter my DNA.
5: This is absolutely false. There's no way
6: these current vaccines can alter the DNA. They don't go into the part of the cell that actually has your DNA, your chromosomes in it, and they're not designed to do that kind of of thing. So um, it's actually physically impossible for that to happen, and uh, certainly we haven't seen any evidence of that in any kind of research studies.
1: We touched on this a little bit before, uh, Dr. Evans, but the myth, we don't know about long-term effects.
7: Well, uh, we certainly know about long-term effects going on almost 10 to 11 months now because of the availability of vaccines and even longer in the test subjects who were part of the initial studies that looked at the mRNA vaccines and the adenovirus vector vaccine. So, um, yeah, we pretty well know that after a solid year or so of the use of these vaccines in various people around the world, uh, that there are not any significant long-term effects that you can ascribe to them.
1: Dr. Evans, uh, or Dr. Hoto, what about um, the concept, and this was because of some miscommunication at the World Health Organization, that mixing and matching vaccines, as we do here in Canada, is dangerous?
6: We have not seen anything to substantiate that that claim. And as you mentioned, this was a miscommunication and, and the headline not really matching what the content of, uh, of what was behind that discussion. Um, and in fact, we're actually starting to see more evidence come out that your immune response seems to be improved if you're mixing some of these vaccines. So I think we're going to continue to learn more about it. Um, certainly no safety signals have come out to my knowledge or, um, you know, broadly within the field. So. It looks like it's safe and effective.
1: And what about your tips, uh, both of you, Dr. Evans, uh, for talking with vaccine-hesitant friends and family? How do you talk with, uh, with them without um, making it seem as if you're being disrespectful or you're not respecting their concerns and fears?
7: Yeah, this is the real, really big challenge when we're we're approaching things. The physicians, uh, like Dr. Hodo and myself, I mean, we have a lot of uh, a certainly a lot of experience in speaking to our our patients about various matters. And what I try and do really is essentially give them the good information, the scientific published information that we know, uh, the experience that we have about vaccines. Lay that out in a positive fashion, and then really do what you're doing with us right now, which is saying here, let them ask questions and then uh, respond to those questions appropriately so that you can, you know, myth bust as necessary and really explain to them that some of these uh, myths that are out there and things are actually generated from a misunderstanding or a poor understanding of how vaccines work.
1: Dr. Hoda, your guidance on how to talk with people who are vaccine hesitant? I absolutely agree with everything that Dr. Evans
6: has said in terms of the science is really powerful in helping people feel comfortable with their decision. The other thing I'd add is, you know, I really just, I try not to make any assumptions that I know what's behind that, you know, concern or whatever the trepidation is that somebody has about getting vaccinated. You know, it's really important to... Start open and listen to everything and not assume that just because I've heard it a million times, this is what I do for a living, um, that everybody else knows all the information and uh, and being there to, to answer the questions, even if it seems like um, something that should be obvious to some people.
1: Vaccine hesitancy. Let's go to the phones. 416-360-0740. Toll free 1-866-740-4740. Jim in Scarborough, welcome to Fight Back.
8: Oh, hi, Jane. Thanks for taking my call. Always enjoy the show. Great. Very much enjoying this one. I've been listening to your great guests, and the reason I phoned is I- I'm a um, Caucasian guy in his late 60s and um, with a good education, and I have several friends. I wanted to raise the issue, uh, several friends who-, who are anti-vaxxers, and I wanted to raise the issue of the influence of the media and culture. Uh, your Your guests you know, very highly intelligent people are using these uh, statements of logic. And what I see among some people I know is that they basically, I I hesitate to use the word, but they get all their information from shows like Tucker Carlson and Rush Limbaugh, who is now no longer in the air, and other far right wing, um, uh, you know, news media. And this anti-vax uh, stance is just one in a whole suite of ideas that they've virtually—there's uh, uh, a film called The Brainwashing of My Father, and it exactly describes these two or three friends that I have, and no matter how logically, uh, you know, you present information to them, they are just not going to buy it
1: excellently phrased question and comment there, Jim. And I know you're a first-time caller, so there's the bell for you. <laughs> Thank you. I'll, I'll, I'll uh, throw your comments over to our experts. Uh, Dr. Yes. Evans, you first. Yeah, uh,
7: he's really touched on an important point. And, and I mentioned at the beginning of, of the half hour that there are really six factors, behavioral science factors, that relate to uh, acceptance of vaccine. And uh, the point is, being made is that, you know, science communication is one of only six ways that people might look at things, and that's vulnerable to communications that occur within a social context, where uh, individuals that have a specific ideology or a political bent may be only going to one source. And so those Factors are the really important factors that are influencing that particular person in making a decision about accepting the vaccine. And so we really need to delve into all of the other things that exist within the the framework of those particular six factors that have a role because you may be able to use... Uh, individual collective interest, uh, some leadership, and we're seeing that in the states now. Uh, I I think everyone noticed about last week, the Republican Party did a 180 on vaccines. And uh, as a result, vaccine rates are massively increasing now in all of the states where vaccine rates were incredibly low, simply based on that group uh, exerting a leadership influence on making people accept vaccines.
1: Right, because, uh, Dr. Hoda, uh, politicized misinformation has been uh, a big driver of the mentality in the United States. It has. And, you know, there's this phenomenon where once you hear something and you kind of, um,
6: you know, get a certain opinion from somebody you respect, politically or otherwise, you you anchor to that a little bit. And then it kind of begets other opinions that similarly reinforce that notion. And so it's actually very easy to go down a rabbit hole and get so far into something that it's hard to claw your way back up and see where, you know, the light is and where other opinions might reside. So, you know, it's it can be dangerous in some ways um, getting too far into, um, you know, hearing some of these opinions and just looking at like opinions. But I did want to also touch on the fact that there's there are two sort of groups here. There are the people who are hesitant still and feel like they want more information or they still feel a little bit nervous about making decisions. And then there's a smaller group of people who are, I guess, for lack of a better term, we call anti-vaxxer. It's a bit, I don't, really like that term. It sounds very anti um and negative, but you know people who are just really rooted on a phenomenon they they just do not want to go there, and it's much more difficult to sway individuals who feel so strongly about it um, and so and that's hopefully a, a smaller group of people but um but it is still a significant number and uh you know i think if if when you have people who are in a position of authority enforcing those ideas. It's, it's a bit of a tricky thing to try and undo.
1: Let's go to Zena in Toronto. Zena, you're up next. Go ahead. Okay, I have more
5: of a question. Um, I have a son who's not been vaccinated, and it's not due to the vaccine itself. It's that he had a, a reaction or he had a bad experience when he was in grade seven of somebody giving him the needle. So how would I approach him that way?
1: Dr. Evans, uh, any guidance for Zena?
7: Yeah, naturally, Zena's touched on something that we've actually really been starting to identify now—that some people have adverse experiences going back in their lives, even to childhood, uh, with getting, uh, you know, a needle or getting a vaccine with perhaps a small local complication. So, the, I think the real thing with those people is that you can actually approach them with understanding. Um, You know how simple this vaccine is and the people that are going to be administering the vaccine are experts. Many of the people that are working at our vaccine centers have now you know given vaccines to thousands and thousands of people. And then the other thing, is to use the potential that that person might have a very good relationship with their primary care physician or nurse practitioner, and that person may be able to work very closely with them, go through the process and explain things, and then really get them to, you know, outlive that experience they had as a child. Those are all effective means of uh, dealing with that.
1: Zena, is that helpful? I hope so. I'll have to,
5: when I have talked to him, when he gets up, and I'll tell him because our normal doctor is not giving it right for some odd reason
1: i don't know well good luck to you all the best let's go to victoria in toronto go ahead victoria
9: hi there thank you for taking my call i'm a hesitant person because i already have a autoimmune uh, disease so i don't trust the mrna vaccine because there's no historical data and and who have you know your, your um, expert there was saying that they've had it tested on people, but control groups like, like me, I don't know.
1: Right. Well, the immunocompromised is a substantial group, Dr. Hota. And how do you address Victoria's concerns?
6: Yeah, I can understand that. And, you know, in the original clinical trials, it's true that people with significant immune compromise, whether they're taking medications for autoimmune disorder disorders or um, if they're immune compromised for other reasons, were not um, included in those studies. And so, you know, we tend to be a lot more cautious and there are sometimes caveats associated with recommendations uh, in those situations. But that said, most of the societies, like the medical societies who, who treat, you know, uh, patients with these um, with these kinds of problems, including autoimmune disorders, have recommended vaccination because the risks of getting COVID nineteen and severe complications of that that infection um, outweighs any risk that could be possibly there with the vaccines. And then coming back to Dr. Evans's points earlier, we've actually had real life experience now across the world with millions and millions of people receiving these vaccines, uh, including those who are immune compromised or have autoimmune diseases. So. We, you know nothing's really panned out from that experience at this point um, and so you know i think that that recommendation to go ahead and get vaccinated still is a really good one
1: so victoria would- victoria when you hear dr hota's explanation does that reassure you a little bit more
9: it doesn't because there's no historical data like give me 2 year data backup 5 year data backup and and like i said i'm not i'm just hesitant and i would take the astrazeneca type vaccine but i can't get it now
1: no that is true you they are not giving az uh, for first doses anymore so
9: so why aren't why isn't the uh health people dealing with what other vaccines out there we could get
1: okay we have one minute left um dr evans can you respond to uh, victoria's question there
7: Yeah, well, first of all, I'd point out, we actually have published data on the administration of these vaccines, both mRNA and the adenovirus vector vaccines in people who suffer from autoimmune disorders, and they are safe. And there are, we're talking now thousands and thousands of people. Secondly, the, you know, a a vaccine, the mRNA vaccines only came out regulatory approved uh, in December. So we're not gonna have data for two to five years, and you are running a risk by remaining hesitant that you might get COVID. And as Dr. Hoda explained, that actually probably has more significant, certainly has more significant consequences if one is, um, is infected. So I, I would really push it. The last thing I'll say is that we are coming out and there soon will be recombinant subunit vaccines uh, which do not contain either an anovirus vector or the mRNA or more traditional vaccine like we use for hepatitis B. And it is possible when those come out, perhaps your hesitation will will drop off. And I would certainly encourage you to. But the mRNA vaccines really are some of the safest vaccines uh, around. And we've been actually, you know, using them in some other infections for a, f- a few years now, if not decades. Well, um, so.
1: we'll have to leave it there. I thank you both for this fascinating conversation, your expertise and your perspective. Thanks. Thank you very much. I'm sure it helped a lot of people. Dr. Gerald Evans, chair of the Division of Infectious Diseases and professor at Queens University. Dr. Susie Hota, medical director, infection prevention and control at the University Health Network. Jane for Libby. Libby returns tomorrow. I will talk with you tomorrow morning on the morning Zoom. And Bob Compsick is next with your news.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio.